Hello and welcome to The Hive, a new conservation podcast. My name's Molly. And I'm Brian. We hope you'll enjoy hearing our conversations as much as we enjoyed having them. So we are back with episode two of The Hive. So this week we'll hear our conversation that we had with Jesse Panazzolo from The Lonely Conservationists, which we were really excited to have, even though it was eight in the morning. Seven in the morning? <laughs> Something around then. It was an ungodly time of the morning. Um, but I think both of us have been listening to her podcast. I'd got through most of her book by the time we, we spoke to Jesse as well. Which are all worth checking out if you've got the time. And I think that's enough jabbering on by us. So why don't we let Jesse introduce herself? Over to you, Jesse. Hello, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, so I don't know about Molly, but I, I try and um, seek out conservation podcasts because I don't find there's too many out there for us as professionals. I find there's a lot of nature and wildlife podcasts um, that are for people that like wildlife and nature, but not necessarily those that are working in it. And those that I have found tend to be a little on the dry side. So I was delighted to hear within the first few minutes of listening to yours, you referring to lemurs as basic bitches. And I thought this might be one that I'll, <laughs> that I'll stick with. Um, and it hasn't let me down since. I mean, Molly, how have you found it? Yeah, no, I've, I, I think, I, like you, I've looked out for conservation podcasts because I got really into my podcast last year and this year. And well, the fact that it's based on your book is a really nice idea anyway. But I also think that the informal chats with you and your boyfriend make it really real. Um, it's also kind of weird for me because my boyfriend's a software developer. So I was like, oh, it's kind of like listening to what we would chat about. But yeah, no, really enjoying it. Sure. I'm really interested to hear if the conversations that we have are anything to do with the conversations you have with your boyfriend, Molly, or if they have sparked conversations with him. Um, but a little bit about me is that I've been in the conservation industry for a bit over a decade. Um, basically my whole life actually, because when I was three years old, my mom came back from Canada of all places and handed me a stuffed toy gorilla. And that just sparked me on this passion for primates. And I had my blinkers on head down working towards um, answering a question I asked my mom when I was five years old, which is, mom, how do I save the orangutans? And it turns out that adults don't know everything. So I spend the rest of my life trying to answer that question for myself. And in when I was 26, I ended up doing my honours in um, North Sumatra with the orangutans, big orangutan conservation project and top conservation researchers over there. And then I looked around and I realised that it's really not ideal for me as a white person to be dreaming of living and working in Indonesia because the women were helping the children and their husbands in the nursery, everyone was contributing to generations of knowledge sharing. And it was building this amazing culture and community around restoration and, and more conservation-based um, practices in the villages. And I just thought that there was, like, I wasn't going to have children. I wasn't going to pass on that knowledge in Indonesia. There was no point to me being here and working here. So I went back to Australia and tried to establish myself there. But in every job that I had, it was horrible bosses. It was like no pay. And I just tried so hard to volunteer my time in a constructive way and get into organizations. But they would always reject me on premises that I didn't have enough NGO experience or this or that. There was always something, a reason why they couldn't employ me. And I was just thinking to myself one day, I have all this experience. I have an honors degree. I have all these connections. 
why aren't I getting employed in the industry and what more could I do? And I got to this point where I felt like I had done everything I could and I kind of gave up. So I was lying on the couch moping um, until my friend from Spain messaged me and she was like complaining about visas because she was stuck in Spain and she wanted to go continue her research in Malaysia. And I realized if she was having angst towards the conservation industry, then I wasn't alone. And up until that point, I felt like the loneliest conservationist. So basically, I got on my computer and I wrote my blog, wrote my story about how I was angsty in conservation. And then I never expected this, but person after person from around the world started sharing their stories on the blog alongside mine. And then now, two years later, we have over 100 stories from global conservationists. So I became accidentally the creator of an organization when I'd given up hope on the conservation industry. So it's a very bizarre life I've been living of going from like, my life is over to, oh, I'm a project leader now. <laughs> so it's been very bizarre. It's, um, yeah, it's really quite interesting. I was driving in my car yesterday listening to the latest episode of your podcast and I was thinking about how to, how to introduce you and I was, I was going to say something about you being inspiring and then on your podcast suddenly you said, I hate it when people call me inspiring. I thought, okay, no, not that. She's reading my mind, don't say that. But I, I think then you, then you described you know, more about describing why and I think you're, the, the work that you're producing is, is more of, a, of an inspiration, which is a better way that you, you know, you've obviously put it in context to say it because... You know, I've I've worked in the industry for over twenty years now, not including work experience. And I there's feelings that I've had throughout my my career that I think I haven't I haven't been able to put a label on them until I hear, you know, you say it and obviously the you know, the, the feedback from your community as well. You know, the thing you said about having to or intervening or not intervening with somebody feeding ducks and then feeling responsible for that. Um so it is an inspiration. It's it's certainly helped with conversations I've had with other people. Well, I'm glad that you use it in that context. I think I I love how many notes you've picked up from what I've said. I feel like I'm being listened to for the first time in my life. <laughs> Just even when you were sending me questions that you were going to ask and there was questions that I talked about in the book and in the podcast and it's just really amazing like I genuinely feel like I have inspired you because I have seen an action come from something that I've done and I love that so much because that's what every conservationist dreams of inspiring an action but it just I don't know it irks me when people don't even know you and they've just got a whiff of something you might have done and then they're like, oh, you're such an inspiration when I've tried really hard to do other things that are much more complicated and I feel better about and I get no praise for that. So I think it's just the dichotomy of what looks flashy and that's what you get attention for. And I think it's also, <laughs> as somebody who's, well, I guess I'm, I'm a very recent conservationist. I, I only graduated technically this year, but from my master's, but I've been working for about two and a half years now. Um, I think hearing you be so frank and honest about your feelings <laughs> and not just like, oh, this is all the fluffy stuff of conservation, um, which I think mostly people that work in conservation do because they think that that's the best way to engage people. But actually to engage with each other, you need to be honest and, and frank. What's your next sort of steps for the learning conservationists? I think it's been really challenging with the book and with the podcast to put so much of myself online and so much of my personal story. Like during the mental health podcast, 
and during the book I actually came to realize that I might have PTSD and I've never really I talk about it in the book how I think I might have but I didn't get it diagnosed since the podcast and the book have finished I've had just from talking to people I have actually gone to a doctor and got on a mental health plan and they've been like yeah you probably have PTSD and I think it's been really challenging to talk about things for the very first time in such a public forum. And even though all the responses have been so positive, it's still been challenging. Um, so I'm, I made the decision to go do a master's of research next year. So I applied and hopefully I get in um, to help get back into the science side and maybe step back from social media. It will still be like um, conservationist conservation. I will still be studying um, conservationist, but it will be from a more like scientific perspective. And I also would love to start helping um, NGOs and people to workshop with their organization to kind of help them reach the goals they want for their staff, increasing wellness and maybe incorporating more values of collaboration and communication and it being okay to fail. So I think if I go and try and make a business like Honestly, I have a big block with business. There's something about admin and finance and stuff that I can't just, I don't know, it, it puts like a, a barrier in my way. But I feel like if I'm doing something like master's and focusing on something for the majority of my time, it would take the pressure off dabbling in these things and not making it have to be successful. Like I can just try things here and there and not dedicate like a whole year to be like, you have to be earning an income by yourself by this time. So I think, I guess this is a long answer, but after how publicly I've shared this year, I think I just need to take some steps back. But then everyone tells me how valuable it is of like the things that I've shared. So I want to maybe find the line between sharing, but in a way that's like preserving my own sanity. So hopefully I can do that next year. Through your podcast and your book, you wrote about how to talk to conservationists from the point of a third party. Something that I, I hear a lot about my job from both people that I work with, um, I have worked with, or just other people outside the industry, when you even allude to the fact that you might not be paid as much as you think you probably should be, is the sentence, but you do do an amazing job that most other people would like to have though, don't you? Is that something you've 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 heard before or, or similar to it? And um, if you have heard that, how do you how do you find yourself responding to it? It's interesting because the thing that comes to mind is kind of the opposite of that experience. Where in when I lived in Adelaide, when I was a lot younger, I was commissioned by the Adelaide Zoo to run an education program of an organisation that I created back then, and I was so happy to be getting paid to do something that I loved and that I created and it felt like a, an amazing milestone and then I had a friend gathering that evening and a friend came over and I must have posted it online to say that I was doing this and I was so happy and he was like congratulations on your new job and I was like what new job and he's like this thing with the zoo and I was like oh no I was just commissioned to do one one day and he's like oh why were you so excited about it then and it was that reaction that stuck with me forever because my immense excitement for this one day of getting paid was like nothing to even talk why did I mention it to him so I think like when we get responses that are not like we're so passionate we put our heart and soul into everything and it's just so jarring when other people can't see that from an external perspective and I guess what you're saying about oh it's just a passion project 
after listening to the podcast, my friend who's a paramedic actually um, came to me and she's like, Jesse, after listening to the podcast, I realized that I have been saying all these things that you don't like being said to you. <laughs> and um, I thought you didn't care that you didn't earn money because you were so passionate about what you did. And I was so jealous of your passion where she knows if she can't make rent that day, she can work one overtime shift and have all the money she needs. I don't have that luxury. And I think she just took her job and that for granted. And she was jealous of my passion. Yes. But of course, I'm jealous of the financial freedom she has. And that is a problem because we need to live like we have to survive. And I think there's a stigma in conservation that we always put ourselves last. We'll spend extra money to get like the eco-friendly option or we will donate donate our last dollars to charity. But there needs to be a change of mindset that we are allowed to earn money and we're allowed to live in a house and eat food. And I think that's why I really want to start changing the conversation because passion doesn't pay the bills. And maybe that's a good answer to give people. <laughs> and I mean, like that day when I was burnt out on my couch, I could have easily like studied to become a carpenter or something. But now I'm dedicating my life to saving conservationists, still unpaid, still like the similar route is because I'm passionate about it. And I think if you're so passionate about something, you eat, you sleep, you breathe it, you can't ignore that feeling inside of you. And if you do decide to become a carpenter, you'll just be miserable because there's going to be this thing inside of you that's like, get back outside, look at the birds, collect frogs. I just think it's intrinsic. Like we must have this conservationist gene or something. If you're a carpenter, you probably just subconsciously end up carving birds into everything that you made as well. <laughs> yeah, have a room full of birds. <laughs> a tapestry, a wooden tapestry surrounding it. Yeah. Wouldn't be the bad thing, build your bird castle around you. People would come over and they would know not to question your hobby. <laughs> That's true, especially if you're holding a chisel in your hand still as well. Exactly. <laughs> So I'll I'll kind of carry on. We, we we have slightly diverted, but I'll carry on with the financial um, ideas. So it's something that both me and Brian are, are quite passionate about, um, and you know it's the fact of, of unpaid work. And you, you wrote that some incredibly talented people wouldn't be able to sustain a career in conservation because you know if you can't work and you're not being paid, some people just cannot do that. They've got responsibilities. They've got families. Um, and obviously that's cutting out a large portion of people who, who might be amazing at conservation. So alongside the obvious issues that this causes to those individuals, what impact do you think it has on the sector? Um, you know, what could we be missing out on? I think we're missing out on a lot of creative solutions, first and foremost. Like if there's a blog that was submitted to Lonely Conservationist last year about this woman in Costa Rica, and she was talking about how a lot of jobs go to Western people and how her friend is like an awesome biologist. He discovered all these new species of frogs and he still didn't get selected for jobs. It was always Westerners coming in. And I feel like it's hard because there's, I guess, layers. Westerners are rich enough to be able to travel everywhere, but that causes more problems where there's people in the, their own countries who can't get jobs, but also that means the conservation efforts can't be sustained. So it's not even in Westerners' best interest. Like that's exactly why I didn't stay in Indonesia. If I really truly care about the forest, it's not in my best interest to stay and work in those landscapes. And so I think conservationists need to be looking at a bigger picture. There's a lot of issues with not collaborating, not thinking of like the social constructs of things. And we all just want to fight our way to the top because there's limited resources. But it's just so disheartening to think that there's so many amazing people out there um, 
I guess conservation is marketed as like you have to be a trust fund baby to work because it's a lot of working for free and everything. It just breaks my heart that there's so many people in amazing landscapes that have made observations. They might have their notebooks and keep notes. And if they were privileged enough, they might have made incredible um, scientific discoveries. They might be well-renowned. It's just there is such a limiting factor for how far you can get. And even like my partner's supporting me at the moment. I'm not like rich. I'm not earning an income. I have still been privileged enough to have my family supporting me, my partner supporting me. And like I have got this far, but still I, I haven't been employed. So if there was like a time constraint that I needed to support a family, I needed to pay medical bills or something, I could not have spent my whole life, which is like 27, 28 years, just spending my time volunteering for people or doing things I was passionate about is just for a lot of the world, we have to work to earn a living. And to like some, some countries and some homes, every single person in the family has to work to just keep like to pay for their house or to pay the rent. So I think there's, there's just so many barriers in paying to work. Like how ridiculous that like, if you're a bricklayer, you would never lay bricks for free for like 10 or 20 years before you get paid to lay bricks. In conservation, I have had to pay to work a job. Like that is unheard of in every other industry. And that's a huge barrier. So I just feel so sorry for all these people that are passionate about sea turtles and crabs and frogs all over the world. And they just have to work at a chicken shop to support their family and stuff. We see other organizations in other sectors competing for new talent. Whereas I sort of compare our process to the Hunger Games. It's, it's basically who survives. Let's put up as many obstacles as we can and whoever makes it out of the end is, must be the best person for it. Do you tend to think this process drives a lot of the issues that you have experienced and people on the, on the um, lonely conservationists have felt too? You know what's crazy? So I did some research where I got 70 blog, the first 70 blogs that were submitted and I looked at what inspires conservationists, what constrains them and the, emoti- the emotional language that they use. One of our top inspirations was our own resilience. Like, I was so deeply disturbed by this because I was like, that shows that the onus is on us to keep having to persevere. And there's no amount of accountability that we hold for NGOs or the people that we work for to make things easier for us. We think we have to learn new languages, develop new skills, and we have to, like, endure shitty bosses and do this and this and this. And... We never once think like, oh, maybe they should change. Maybe this is ridiculous. And if there's so many people struggling, why aren't they taking the accountability to do something? And maybe because a lot of sectors have these standardized procedures or standardized uh, hierarchies or, you know, like just systems in place for their employees. Whereas there's no like conservation union or anything, because I guess the jobs associated with conservation are so diverse. You could be an academic, you could be in land care, you could be like a soil scientist. I don't know how they would even unionize that or how they would like standardize the practices. But I just feel like it's it's so sad that we feel like we have to be the most resilient person to get anywhere because that's why nobody has talked about any of this stuff in lonely conservationists before I talked about it is because everyone was too afraid to because they need to be seen as perfect to get the one job that exists even to the point where I was in a Mongo Bay article the beginning of this year or last year 
And the journalist said to me, he was trying to write an article the year before about how conservationists don't get paid enough. And he couldn't get anybody to assign their name to the quotes because nobody wanted to be seen as complaining about the industry because it's such a dog-eat-dog industry, I guess. Like when I graduated, there was like two, two to 300 graduates each year of, in the conservation degree. And there was like two jobs. So you, it's understandable why you think you have to be putting your best foot forward at all times, being seen as this perfect model citizen. And if we can't, if we don't know something, we will learn it. Like that's why I did a whole chapter about skills, because the amount of skills that um, conservationists have to acquire is insane. Like if you are a carpenter, you just have to know how to whittle wood and build tables. But if you're a conservationist, you have to do risk assessments. You have to be able to talk publicly. You have to learn first aid. What happens if you get a snake bite? You have to be able to like communicate with the public, but also communicate scientifically, but also communicate with like um, governments and internal people. Like there's just so much that we have to learn and do. And we're just so willing to do it. Like as we were saying before, we'll pay to work because we're passionate about it. We will literally do anything to get a job, which just means we can be exploited. Um, so that's fun. <laughs> but yeah, resilience is something we're proud of. And I think we should change that. We should put the onus on the companies. What I wanted to just quickly ask was that you, when you mentioned skills and how many we need, have you noticed that on requirements for jobs, there's been training that you've had to have paid for and skills that you have to have you know, taken time to, to learn that you could easily be taught in the job and, and being paid while you do it? Is it? Have you noticed that as a reoccurring theme for jobs that you've applied for? I think I saw a statistic where men will apply for jobs that have like they meet 40% of the criteria and women won't apply unless they meet 100%. So I, I don't think I've noticed it from like a conservation perspective, but I feel like now I know this fact, I've started looking at positions and, and not thinking that I have to hit every single one of them anymore because I, I don't know like conservation is weird right because we're so competitive that maybe we'll take it upon ourselves to assume that we have to learn all this and pay for all this because that's the culture of the industry so it's interesting to think about like what is cultural and personal and what is like a, an actual requirement of the company because I think like I don't apply for jobs unless I, I know everything. And I know, I think for my honours, they're like, oh, yeah, you should have four-wheel drive training. And I'm like, why? I'm, I'm not going to be driving anywhere. But, like, I have been in situations where they want you to get all this excess training that maybe you won't even use. Conservationists are hugely disposable. There's so many of us and not a lot of jobs at all. So I think that's why... Every company I've worked for that's been really toxic, as soon as I leave, I see like an ad for my position like the next week. It's they don't try to fix or remediate any of the issues that I brought up with them, any of the issues we faced. Like, and what's ridiculous is also sometimes I try to stick out at a job past the point where I logically should have. So by the time where I have left, I can't be bothered t trying to take them to a union or trying to fight with them because I just want to leave them behind. And so if everyone's so emotionally exhausted and nobody's fighting them, they have no motive to stop doing the toxic things that they're doing. So it's kind of like we're disposable and our emotions and our feelings and our like exhaustion is all disposable too and that's why I guess a lot of conservationists don't value themselves 
And especially I ask people like, you should tell your story. That's really interesting. They'll be like, oh, I'm not good enough to tell my story. And it's crazy that people don't think their story is valid, especially if you're in high school or outside of a paid role in conservation, you might not think your input is valid, but how are we going to tell a story of the industry without recording the experiences of all the players? And I just wish that when, I don't know, in school or something, people would just acknowledge that if you're like a cleaner at a McDonald's or if you're like the president of a bank, each player is so important in how society functions. Like if there's no cleaners at McDonald's, like that would be the worst. So I just think that there needs to be a shift of how people value themselves, but there can't be that shift unless we're treated with respect at our workplaces, unless we're financially respected and just like socially and culturally respected as well. What are the other benefits that you would see for conservationists and I mean everybody if if there was this sort of standardization in HR practices and, and routines and stuff that would be just so good because I've been in two jobs that were like eerily similar I talk about in the book I got fired twice for having the flu like I had to leave two jobs on two separate occasions for having the flu like if that had a if they both had a HR department I'd walk up to HR and be like this is unethical like I could have done something about it. But because these were both family businesses, I, I couldn't do anything. And I don't even know if they fell in or outside of a union because there's probably some loophole or something. So just the ability to not get pushed around by people, I think would be huge. And then we wouldn't be so disposable because we could actually start resolving issues in the workplace. And actually that would be better because that means companies would be more successful if they actually took the time to resolve issues and to grow and develop rather than just replacing someone after another and then like harboring these issues for as long as the company exists. I don't even know how that's sustainable for them. So I don't know what the benefit is from like a management perspective of running a toxic business and having to retrain and put money and effort into constantly retraining people. Wouldn't it be better to have like long-term staff that know what they're doing and are more autonomous? So I feel like if there was standardized, even standardized mental health, like my partner um, is in IT and he works for the government and he has like X amount of free counseling sessions that come with his job. How great would that be for conservationists who have to watch mass species loss or they're in weird cultural situations or like the range of things we experience in the industry? What if we could be like, okay, Sally, I'm off for my like 30 minute consultation with the therapist. I'll be back again, ready to address this issue. Like it would only bring good things, I think. <laughs> It feels like something that every worker should have, doesn't it, as well? But yeah, there's the specific issues in conservation. Do you get the feeling that people on Lonely Conservationists are, are emboldened to, to perhaps be a bit more honest with their employers about their terms and conditions? I know that people are still apprehensive about their jobs. Like the blog that was written about, um, what is it called? She has a health condition, chronic illness. She has a chronic illness. Uh, which limits her from doing her work. She didn't put her full name or a picture because she was still worried about the chronic illness impacting her uh, employment rate. So there's instances like that where I know that the blog would not boost their confidence. Um, but I think now some employers are starting to know about lonely conservationists. So I, I wonder what impact that is having from just their exposure to seeing how many conservationists are starting to speak up. I only really know how the blogs have influenced other conservationists like 
there was one conservationist that their story in the, in the blog was eerily similar to another one. And I asked them why, and they're like, oh, well, theirs was well-received, so I felt confident enough to tell mine. So I think we're still at the baby steps where just telling your story is such a huge thing, and people have had anxiety from the time they submit their story to when it's published because they don't know how it's going to be received. And I get that because after I published the blog, I was like – very, very nervous. I mean, after I published the book, I was very, very nervous to see how it will be received. And even after each podcast episode, as I said, I'm worried about how it's going to be received. So if you're bearing your soul online, that's like a huge thing to, like even for your family and friends to not know how they're going to react, especially if this is not something you comfortably talk about with the people in your life. So I think maybe it would take us a few more years <laughs> to get to a, a point where we can have these conversations with our employees and use lonely conservationists as evidence, be like, there's 4,000 people who like, will not tolerate this. Because the fact is, there's probably like 200,000 more people who haven't seen lonely conservationists who would jump through all the hoops needed to take the job. So maybe lonely conservationists have to keep playing the game because they're still disposable at this time. But if we keep having this conversation, then maybe that can change into the future. So obviously, um, Lonely Conservationist does um, it does cover some of the harder parts of of the of the sector, and that's I guess why it's why it's there. But also, I think that it you know provides hope that obviously a group of people can make change, and there is still a lot of inspiration. Yeah, and and inspiration. <laughs> You're not inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but you know, it it does it does enable a lot. Of, there's still a lot of good in the in the in the sector as well. Um, so what what's your favorite thing about working in conservation? I think I just love from working in conservation, like back before Lonely Conservationists, like why do we all do it? Because we get to go to the coolest places in the world, but not as a tourist. Like we get to see behind the scenes. Like I remember walking down the street of Madagascar carrying a sack of potatoes with bare feet and I felt like I've made it, like I am a part of this now. And for me, I love that immersion is like maybe the best experience, something that I hold so closely to my heart is when I was, um, I talk about this in the book, how I went to get a drink after my transects with my two field staff. And it was just a lot of guys in the village chatting to me. And then when we were walking back to the Pondok, which is like the cabin we we're staying in, I asked my field staff, why were there no other women? And they're like, oh, no, no women allowed. And then I was like, but what about me? And they're like, oh, you're different. So the fact that I got to be so included that I was able to experience a social situation that not even local women could experience was so amazing and humbling to me that I had, because I think the craziest thing about this was the the year before I went there for a month and I was a white woman who didn't understand a lick of their language and I was stuck in this like in the middle of the forest in this cabin with them for a month straight like before, we had to get up before the orangutans got up so we could find their morning nest track them all day after the orangutans went to bed we would come home we did that for like a month straight spending every minute of the day together so within that month we learned how to talk to each other it was like growing up again like I learned how to talk I learned how to walk through the forest I learned all this stuff and we'd build this we built this relationship so it was so cool the next year to come back and already have that dialogue have that rapport and then people from the village remembered me from last time and I think what I really don't like about conservation is like that helicopter you pay to come in, um, you have like the token experience and you get out. But because it was just me as the only person in this 
in this um, situation and they accepted me so much I felt like I don't know it just felt really different like I'd immerse myself in this landscape and I think nothing can beat that because it takes effort it's like I th- my partner said the other day that what is it like the rock said muscles are important because money can't buy them and you have to work for them <laughs> and that's kind of like this but the rock has money to go to a gym is what I said <laughs> um but like no you can't just buy your way into that like I had to put in so much effort to learn a language from scratch build my relationship in a patriarchal country where women didn't have equal rights and to get from like a total foreign white stranger to being allowed to be in that meeting was just like the most incredible thing for me and I think like every conservationist has even if it's just in their backyard if they made a special connection with a snail or something like every conservationist has that moment where it feels like only they understand or like the whole world disappears and it's like this special connection with something and I just think that's why people stay in the industry is because that's the intoxicating thing that keeps us in there. Uh, so early this year just before our lockdown my wife had a stroke it was quite a hard thing to deal with and I think seeing um, wildlife and nature peddled as a as a um, therapy for for mental health um, is you know it's a great thing and it is a, it is an obvious route for a lot of people to take therapy from it. But I what I couldn't do is find that in my own workplace where there was nature. I had to I took myself on a weekend away a few weeks ago. Do you find that with the with the nature that you're working on that that provides you with with some therapy? Mm, I can't meditate I can't shut my mind off and this is why I love bird photography is because birds are so fast you can only concentrate on getting the shutter right at the moment where the bird's in the right position so for me nature has become less about the landscapes and more about a real life game of Pokemon and trying to catch every bird (laughs) but that has like nature in that regard has captivated my wellness in a way that nothing has been able to before it's just captured my attention and centered me and allowed me to focus on something and I think there's two kind of parts with this because one is I notice the more I go to a certain place the more I pick up new things I'm like oh that's where the cockatoos hang out that's where I might see a kingfisher this is where sometimes little wrens will hop around my feet so the more I get accustomed with the landscape the more I feel like I'm comfortable in it and I can know what to expect from the wildlife that's in the landscape but then there's something to say about going to a brand new spot Like, so for instance, I've been chasing this Nankeen night heron for like two years. Ever since I came to Melbourne, everybody said that they've been seeing it. And I was like, where is it? So this weekend, I was like, everybody has been seeing it in lockdown. I'm finally allowed out. I'm going to go find where everybody's been tagging this heron. And it took me two goes. I went in the morning, didn't see anything. I went in the afternoon. I finally saw the heron. But at that moment in this wetland, I'd never been before until that day, a kingfisher I'd never seen popped itself on like the branch next to it and like this place was only like 10 minutes drive from my house and I'd never been there before and there was all these new birds that I've never seen before I can't believe I saw two lifers in the one day when I was just looking for the one and it was just so crazy to me to think that like this was not even that geographically far but just a new place had brought me so much new excitement because it had just a touch of newness to it and I think like a lot of conservationists kind of play that Pokemon game if you're like a herpetologist or you're into butterflies you always want to see something different so I think there's a comfort in being 
in places that you know and really getting to know the animals and their behavior but there's also something really exhilarating about going and seeing nature that's new I guess in the same respect as well I've noticed because I run some um, nature focused bereavement groups uh, that, as part of my job so um, I, I kind of assumed when I first started them that it would probably advertise to people who are already interested in wildlife um, and it's actually the complete opposite most people or actually all of them that come don't really have an inherent passion for wildlife or anything they maybe the person that they'd lost had and it was a way of connecting with them but they find you know everything's new and and it's quite nice for me because I feel like you know I know loads of stuff and I can share everything with them but um I guess maybe that's quite a restorative aspect of it is the fact that you're learning um you're and you can I mean seeing a new species is still learning because you'll you'll pick up all the all the characteristics of it so I think yeah I think there's something something in being in a new area or seeing something new or anything new is good (laughs) there's just this one time you made me think of so in Madagascar we had this bird book and there was one bird that was really rare it's a Madagascar fish eagle and there was only like 50 breeding pairs and it was always the joke that you'd go out on a bird survey and then you come back and people like what did you see and you'd be like oh we saw a fish eagle like there's no way right but then one time a breeding pair started nesting on the camp and the volunteers that arrived that week thought it was like a common bird because it was there since they started like since they arrived on camp and we were just so mad that they didn't understand the gravity of how amazing this bird was like they didn't have the context of it being rare so I think that's like I'm interested to see like when you continue these groups if there's a some like a piece of wildlife that you think is really rare or special that they just have no idea because they don't know any nature so they're like oh look at this and you're like oh my god (laughs) But I think another cool thing is when you freak out about something that people are like, oh, it's just a snail. And you're like, but that's like this incredible type of snail. And then they get excited about the snail. So it's like you have this immense power to make other people happy just by getting excited over something. Let's look at uh, maybe drawing on some of your experiences. What advice or encouragement do you have for people who are struggling to find paid work in in conservation and maybe people that would like to work in conservation someday? Mm. This is a cool one because I read a book on citizen science and it really convinced me that citizen science is the way to the future. And I think this for a lot of reasons. One is that you don't need like academic citations or whatever. So your time is not roped up in writing papers or like doing the bureaucracy of academia. You can just sift through the data and a lot of new planets or not new planets, like maybe like far off planets and stars have been found from citizens, uh, citizen scientists. Citizen scientists have been able to make amazing contributions to different communities around the world. And I think it's very underrated. So I always like to tell people that you can do science from your bedroom. Like there's this website, I can't remember what it's called, Zootopia or something. And it has a range of different citizen science projects and you can literally sift through camera trap footage in in your bed if you want. So you don't have to go to university, you don't have to get a job to do the things that we're all doing. And in fact, you probably don't even have to pay to do it. Like you could have a normal job and do conservation on the side because citizen science is so accessible. Even like, because I'm a birder, I have eBird. So if I see a cool bird or if I want to go out track all the birds that I see, I can put them into an app, which is really useful because when I want to go and see, like when I wanted to go see that heron, I would see 
see where was it last sighted. And thanks to some lovely citizen scientists, I could go find the heron. So I think citizen science is a great way for people to get involved with conservation because it's not even just going and planting trees. Like you can actually get as deep as you want to get with citizen science. But I guess in terms of like employment, it's challenging because like I don't have the answers now. And like I'm 28, I've been trying to be a conservationist my whole life and I still am not getting full-time paid for what I'm doing. And that's challenging. But I think you have to go into the industry knowing that that's the case. And maybe like if you're okay with getting into government or okay with building a relationship with a specific NGO right from the beginning and not straying, I think my problem is, well, firstly, I put all my eggs in an Indonesian basket, which wasn't very good. But if you're a local and you put your eggs into like a, a local NGO, that might be good to start building relationships with a company rather than an animal and start networking. And like, I think it's who you know in the industry, not what you know. So I think we put so much effort, especially in undergrad, that was like get volunteer experience, blah, blah. And I was just getting experience with any animal I could think of, where I think in hindsight, it would be better to pick like a location or a a place with people in it and start trying to get in with them instead. If anybody's done that, let me know. It's probably worked out better. <laughs> Do you think there's um, any particular soft skills like storytelling, for example, or anything that, that people, you know, that people could really benefit with developing? Yeah, storytelling is one. They actually teach storytelling for uh, community organizers for like to get people on board with a, a political what is it called? Like a political party? Yeah, party. <laughs> um, they will send campaigners out to door knock and they will use personal stories to get people on board because that's what hooks in our emotions. So that's something they're already using in the community organizing space. But for me, it's acknowledgement of failure because conservation is full of failures. It is packed full of them. But because of our front of having to seem perfect, we never acknowledge them and we never learn. So after I was a panelist on a failure conference this year and I learned about this thing called a failure wall, I established one for my community. You can go on to lonelyconservationist.com. There's a failure wall there. And I encourage everyone to put their failures on it because I think we need to be talking about our failures and learning from them, and especially in conservation where maybe release rates for animal rehabilitation are not great. But if it if, like if 60% of the animals died in this release, why? How can we prevent it next time? But the media are just going to say X company killed 60% of their animals, so they don't want to talk about it because there's that stigma of being perfect, otherwise you lose your grant money. But if everybody is acknowledging their failures, like even Charles Darwin in The Origin of Species had a whole chapter dedicated to the things he's not sure about or possible flaws to his theory of evolution – like he started this trend why aren't we continuing to follow on with it because that was genius and that's what sets him apart so I feel like if I could like just instill one piece of wisdom in people is to just talk about your failures and normalize it because that's how we grow and learn and especially like personally I learn from mistakes so unfortunately for all the employers that ever have to deal with me, I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm going to learn about them. But imagine if all the people around me in the office didn't have to make that mistake again because I wrote it on a wall. We talked about it and they never had to make my mistake again. So I feel like it's something that if people looked for in a person, like maybe we would have a more collaborative, communicative office 
in the conservation world. I Do you think, think there's also side effects from that? And sorry, Molly, I'm sorry. That's all right. oh. no, I was just going to say that I find that often with project work, nobody reports anything success or failure. You know, you might hear about a real headline one liner if it's a success, but how can you learn and grow from anything? Any of these projects that are externally funded run for a year or two and then completely stop dead, but not even given a write up or a report. It's just it's crazy to me. Yeah, exactly. And I think also there's this notion of like everything in conservation has to be sexy to get money. Like you always want the brand new shiny pro uh, project to get money. Monitoring should be sexualized because we need to monitor the things that we start, keep them going, collect data over a long period of time. There's no way we can even tell that something's had an impact after a year of funding. So it's just unfortunate that a lot of funding organizations want to give money to big, sexy new projects. And I wish as well that alongside failure, we put money into the continuation of projects instead of starting something new because we need time to learn from the failures and implement what we have learned because I think why what's the point of talking about failure if after a year that funding is going to get cut and they're going to force us to focus on a different facet of the project we can't even learn from that failure anyway so maybe some people have the perception of what's the point of talking about it if our resources are dictated by somebody else and we don't have that control so make monitoring sexy again Okay, I'm going to have to have some ideas on how we do that. <laughs> Get Trump in. Trump, he uh, <laughs> almost went the whole interview, didn't he? <laughs> so I guess, to, I guess to, to round it up, what hope do you see for the future of conservationists? I feel like if we keep going in this direction of even having these conversations, it means I get to meet amazing people like you guys and we get to have this conversation and we get to learn from each other. I feel like hopefully I've started a ripple that allows other people to have this dialogue. And I guess the point of having the conversation with Todd as well is to have conversations more broadly than just within our circles because a lot of the time in conservation we preach to the converted and maybe only talk to other conservationists. I really want to try to get as many people as I can to understand what we're going through because for my friend to say like I'm sorry I never understood that um, your passion wasn't enough to pay the bills that's huge for me because in my whole life we've never had that conversation before and now that's a new piece of understanding between us so hopefully in the future, there's the storytelling continues and the communication and collaboration continues. And I think conservation is very hierarchical and we all stay in our lanes. Hopefully that's the older generation and it changes with us and we move together in a more collaborative way. Because if there's five organizations trying to save the orangutans and they're not sharing resources and not sharing data, do they really care about the orangutans or do they care about winning the race to save the orangutans? So I feel like, I really hope that conservationists can move together and share the limited resources that we have, share the limited data that we have, and maybe we can actually conserve something instead of just stroking our egos for once. Collaboration is key. Collaboration is key. Brilliant. All right, Jesse. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's almost time for you to go to bed, I suppose. Uh, yes, my seven-year-old 8 p.m. bedtime. <laughs> And it's Thank almost you, time Dad. for us to start work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry. It's not far off my actual bedtime. Oh. Yeah, I was going to say, that's your bedtime, sure. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Jesse. All the best. Thank you. No worries. Have a good day. 
We'd like to thank Jessie again for talking to us about her experiences, her book, and the Lonely Conservationist community as well. What I really found interesting from that talk was how some of the, the conditions and issues that are being reported by conservation in this in this country are also being reported back on the other side of the world and throughout the lonely conservationist community too, which I didn't think would necessarily be the case. So that was surprising to me. And I think it's really important to think about ourselves and actually take a minute to think about your own mental health and how our career type can actually really affect it, especially with things like burnout. I think that's not something I would never have thought about prior to, to hearing from Jesse. So, yeah, I'd like to say again a massive thank you and we have got some links to Jessie's stuff in our description along with our social media such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and our blog uh, on our WordPress site. If you enjoyed what you heard today and would like to hear some more from us, then you can always like and subscribe if you're if the platform that you're listening on allows you to do that. And if you enjoyed what you heard, you can always listen to our next episode, which what are we hearing about in our next episode, Brian? We will be talking about views on the conservation sector. So that will um, incorporate some of the, the stuff we've spoken about today in terms of resilience, um, burnout, inclusion, diversity. So a whole host of things. Everything. Everything. Not everything. Some things. <laughs> all right. So that's, that's all from us today. So see you later. Bye.